These are the final days of David. The end of his reign and the beginning of the reign of Solomon. And the way that David's reign is ended and the way that Solomon starts is not the way a typical government would exchange hands. The focus is not what you would expect. And so as David is getting ready to die, Adonijah, this is from 1 Kings chapter 1, Adonijah, who is Absalom's brother, David's son, Adonijah says, okay, this is a good time for me to assert my authority and take the throne, even though God had already declared that Solomon would be the heir and the king over Israel. So Adonijah gets Joab, the commander of the army, and a few others together, and they go down to Hebron, which was where the kingdom was established in Judah when David first took the throne. And they got everybody together and started putting this, this whole plan into action. And what First Kings tells us is that Nathan and Zadok, Nathan's the prophet, Zadok's the priest, they hear of this coup. And so Nathan goes to Bathsheba and says, hey Bathsheba, you know that Solomon is supposed to be king. That's what God said, and that's what David declared. And so you need to go tell David what's going on with Adonijah. And so Bathsheba goes in and she tells David, Adonijah is preparing a coup. He's already got everybody in line. He has not invited Nathan or Zadok because Nathan and Zadok would have called it plain and said, you guys are out of line. So, of course, they don't want to hear that they're out of line, so they keep the people who would tell them the truth out of the picture. So David says, go get Solomon. And he has Nathan and Zadok put Solomon on David's donkey and take him to the place where they anoint him as king and proclaim him as a king. So when a king comes in peace, and when the king uh, took the throne, it would be on a donkey, a peaceful animal, okay? An animal of service, all right? And that's how Jesus came in on the triumphal entry, right? He came in on a donkey, not on a horse. A horse was battled. When Jesus comes back, he will come on a war horse. But the first time, the king of peace comes riding on a donkey through the streets of Jerusalem. So Solomon is taken and he is anointed as king and everybody's celebrating and rejoicing and whatnot and Adonijah and the gang hear of it and go, what is going on? And then they find out we're in big trouble because Solomon is king. So that is the first official change of rule over into the hands of Solomon. Where I want us to begin this morning is in one of the Psalms, Psalm 131. You can turn there. It is a very tiny Psalm, three verses. But what we have here is beautiful and it's powerful. And we see the heart of David in everything else that will follow. And it's the heart that we should have toward the Lord as well. 
In Psalm 131, David says, and this is a song of ascents, this is one of the psalms that would be sung when they were ascending the hill to the temple in Jerusalem. So when you went to worship God and when you were going to offer sacrifices and you ascended, if, if you've ever been to Israel, if you've ever been to Jerusalem, it is just hilly. So you're always going to be going up, ascending to the temple. And that's what was going on. And so here's one of the songs. And listen to what David says here. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. And then verse 3, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. David is saying to the Lord, I'm not proud. I'm not puffed up. I'm not seeking my own. I'm not trying to be more important, more elevated. I'm like a weaned child. And it's like, I'm reading that and I'm studying it. And it's like, what is he talking about? Like a weaned child? What does that mean? And what I read was that when you have an infant, a nursing baby, they want gratification. Understandably, they're babies. They need food. They want gratification. They want comfort. They want safety. But the time comes when a child is weaned. And in, these, in the days of, of uh, the, the Bible, it was usually about three years of age that the child was weaned, okay? A weaned child is not so dependent upon the mother anymore. Still is, but also the father. But the relationship between child and mother goes beyond immediate gratification, comfort, and safety. And there is a bond of love that developed. And with David, this is the crux of everything. Why was David a man after God's own heart? He failed miserably. He screwed up bad. But we see time and time again throughout the scripture that God says, he was a man after my own heart. David's heart was in love with God. And we're going to see that as he hands over the rule of the nation to his son Solomon. David is a humble man. He's not trying to make his own kingdom. He's concerned about the Lord and the Lord's kingdom. And he's not interested in his own wants and desires and aspirations. Like a weaned child, he just loves his heavenly father. And he wants a relationship with his father. And he wants Israel to have a relationship with their heavenly father. And he wants his son Solomon to have a relationship with his heavenly father. 
when it's all said and done, what remains? What lasts? Jesus said, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves cannot break in and steal. We can spend so much time pouring into the things of this life and Solomon learns this very well as we look into the book of Ecclesiastes and into the Proverbs. He's learned it the hard way and he's learned it because of the wisdom God's given him. When our lives end, what do we leave behind? What legacy? What's the most important thing that we're investing in with our lives right now? Are they things that are temporal or things that will go on and last on into eternity, some of them? It's good for us to ask these questions. And when we wrap this up, we'll see what Jesus has to say about all this. So all that being said, is that being our backdrop, let's go over to Second Chronicle, First Chronicles, my apologies. And chapter 23, it talks about, you know, David handing the kingdom over to Solomon. So they were co-regents. This was not uncommon in the ancient world, whereas the king was becoming ill or about to die or whatever, he would put his son on the throne and they would co-reign over the nation. That's what happened when Adonijah tried to usurp the throne. Okay. Now, of all the things that David could be doing in the last days of his life, getting ready to hand over this kingdom, he's not focused on the enemies. He's not focused on uh, politics. He's not focused on revenue. He's not focused on taxes. He's not focused on infrastructure. He's not focused on any of that kind of thing. He's focused on the Lord. He's focused on the people's relationship with the Lord. Because David understands that a person and a nation centered in God will be a successful, great, and blessed nation. David cares about the people of God. Always did, always continued to throughout his life. So in chapter 23, he calls all the priesthood, the Levites together. And there's a lot more than there were back in the days of Moses. And so he puts together 24 divisions of priests. And you see him begin to actually cultivate this whole order of worship and ministry to the Lord and to the people. And so every two weeks, a division would be leaving and a new division would be coming in to do their stint at the temple. All right, 24 divisions, that's 12 two-week time frames, all right? Now, in chapter 24, it lists these divisions and the heads over those divisions, all right? And this is all broken down. 
and at first it's like, okay, yeah, so this guy and this guy, all right, yep, okay, great. It didn't really mean a lot to me. And most of these names don't connect really beyond this. But there's this one guy in verse 10 of chapter 24, it says, the seventh to Hakaz, don't know who the guy was, the eighth to Abijah. Now, who is this guy? I really don't know. But Luke, in chapter 1, tells us of a man named Zechariah. And he was of the division of Adonijah. And he was serving his two-week stint at the temple. And the Lord ordained that he would offer incense before the, the, the ark on the, the altar of incense, which represented the prayers of the people. And of course, you know, we know what happened. Elizabeth, his wife, couldn't have children. She was of the line of Aaron, okay? And Zechariah was of this guy, Abijah. And Gabriel meets him in there and tells him that John the Baptist was coming. He and Elizabeth would have a son who would be the forerunner of the Messiah. And we see this little thread, this chain going forward. And what it tells us is what God gave David the wisdom to establish here, carried on through the time of Christ to when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD and the priesthood was completely shut down. What we have here was lasting as God gave wisdom to David to put everything in order so that the people of God would know how to have a relationship with God. And I find that amazing. And then David organizes the musicians. And he even has built the instruments for the musicians. My understanding here at the church is if you're a musician, other than a piano or drums, you provide your own instrument or handbell choir, okay? But uh, David provided all the worship leaders, the whole worship team with instruments. That's just cool. His heart was for the worship of God. He prepared everything, including the instruments. And the orders of the worship leaders were broken down. Gatekeepers, defenders of the temple were listed, verse 20, or chapter 26. And then in chapter 27, there is a shift to where it's the military divisions. And so rather than having this huge standing army, David has the wisdom to just have 24,000 men in each tribe, each one would serve for one month. Kind of like the National Guard kind of thing, you know, where you, you did your job, you worked at home, you tilled your land and everything, took care of your family. For one month, you would go and you would serve as the standing army for Israel, and then you go back home and get on with life. So all of this is broken down. And then in chapter 28, David begins to charge Israel and Solomon. And when we go down to verse 5, listen to what David says. And all of my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons, 
He has chosen Solomon, my son, to sit on the throne of the kingdom of who? The Lord. David does not say my kingdom. Remember, this is another thing about David. He always understood who the king was. God was king. He was just a servant of the king. And so he's making it very clear that he would sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. He said to me, God said to David, it is Solomon, your son, who shall build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. I will establish his kingdom forever if he continues strong in keeping my commandments and my rules as he is today. So we know at this point, Solomon is walking in the ways of God. He has a heart for the Lord. Now, therefore, in the sight of all Israel, the assembly of the Lord, and in the hearing of our God, now David is speaking to the people of Israel, he says, observe and seek out all the commandments of the Lord, your God, that you may possess this good land and leave it for an inheritance to your children after you forever. Does that sound familiar? It's the exact same thing that the Lord told Moses to tell the people of Israel before they entered the promised land. Observe and keep and seek the commands of God so that you may possess the good land and be able to hand it down to your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. When we walk in the ways of God and we follow the Lord, we are handing over a lineage and a heritage to our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and beyond. Our kids and grandkids need to see the life of Christ lived out in our lives. Why should they follow Jesus if we are living just like the world? Why would they put their hope and this is something I've been thinking for my own life. Why would they put their hope in Christ when they see their own father get scared when tough times come? See, we're going to see how this carries over into our personal lives. Our children watch us. Are we talk? Do we just go to church? Or is there a relationship with the Lord? that they see wrought out in the home. That's what's David's heart. He's not talking about palaces and kingdoms and armies and stuff. He's saying, look, I want you to possess this good land. I want your children to possess this good land. This is the heart of God. So seek his commandments and keep his commandments. And then in verse nine, he says to his son Solomon, and you Solomon, my son, know, experientially know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart. Remember, David prayed that prayer, God, unite my heart to fear your name. He's telling his son, follow him, seek him with a whole heart. And he says, and a willing mind for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. 
If you seek him, he will be found by you. If you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Be careful now, for the Lord has chosen you. He doesn't say to rule the kingdom. Look what he says. To build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. Solomon, my son, follow the Lord because he's given you the position and the command to build him a house. Be strong. We're going to see later, he says, be strong and courageous. The same thing that Moses told Joshua. God told Joshua, be strong and do it. Verse 11, then David gave Solomon, his son, the plan of the vestibule of the temple and of the houses and his treasuries, its upper rooms and its inner chambers and of the room of the mercy seat and the plan of all that he had in mind for the courts of the house of the Lord, all surrounding chambers, the treasuries of the house of God and the treasuries for dedicated gifts. And then it goes on the divisions and all of that. Now, if you look... Going on to verse 19, look what David says. All this he, God, made clear to me in writing from the hand of the Lord all the work to be done according to the plan. God gave Moses the plans for the tabernacle. God gave David the plans for the temple. David is entrusting those into the hands of Solomon. Okay. And then verse 20, then David said to his Solomon, his son, be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed for the Lord God, even my God is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work for this service of the house of the Lord is finished. And behold, the divisions of the priests and the Levites and the serve for the service of the Lord of the house of God and with you in all the work will be every willing man who has a skill of for any kind of service. Also the officers and all the people will be holy at your command. Wow. The focus of David is on the Lord and keeping the people focused on the Lord, following the Lord. Chapter 29, verse 1, David the king said to the, all the assembly, Solomon, my son, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great. Look what he says. For the palace, not temple, not house, the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. He's saying, gang, this thing is huge. And my son is young and inexperienced. He's going to need help because he's going to be taking the lead on building a palace for God. So throughout the history of Israel, they had been putting into the treasuries of God things for the worship of God. Gold, silver, bronze, iron, precious stones and jewels. And Samuel did it. Solomon even had stuff that was put in there. It tells us that David, from his own personal account, contributed 3,000 talents of gold. Okay? The leaders of the tribes contributed an additional 5,000. So that's 8,000 talents of gold 
above and beyond what was already stored up over centuries for the house of the Lord. The amount that was just given by David and the leaders for the Lord was in excess of $15.8 billion. That's a lot of gold. And that's just a portion of silver, $77 million in silver. And it was just a fraction. The temple, the palace of God was magnificent. We're told that when you went into the palace, into the temple, you cannot see any of the wood or any of the stone because floor to ceiling, top to bottom, everything was overlaid with gold. Gold is the metal of divinity, of heaven. Wood is humanity. The temple itself is a picture of Christ. This is what Solomon had to put together. This whole focus is to glorify God. To focus on God. Going down to verse 11. David is speaking to the Lord. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, O God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you and of your own we have given you. David understood the truth that everything he had came from God. He was just a steward. And he makes this declaration, it's like, who are we? We don't have anything to give you. Anything we do give you is yours anyway. But we want to bless you. And then going on, as he's praying, verse 19, he says to the Lord, grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments your testimonies and your statutes, performing all, and that he may build the place for which I have, I mean, the palace for which I have made provision. David couldn't build the temple because he was a man of war. But David took every effort he could to provide completely for the building of the temple. Solomon really didn't have to do anything except access what David had stored up. Such was David's heart. It's like, okay, God, if you're not going to let me build it, I'm going to make sure you gave me the plans. I'm going to make sure we got everything ready. I'm going to put everything in order. And then it says, going on to verse 22, they made Solomon, the son of David, king the second time. Okay. This is official. Uh, again. Okay. But now he is king and, and David's really stepping, stepping back into the shadows, and then David dies. 
So, oh, we're good on time. All right. Okay. So, we see the heart of David. We see his love and focus for the Lord. We see his desire for the people of Israel to walk in the ways of the Lord. He sees, we see his desire to have them be blessed by the Lord and for Solomon to walk with the Lord. How does that carry over to us? Okay. Well, if we go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. So we're going to do some scripture surfing, so get your big board, okay? We've got a lot of waves to catch. But 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 19, familiar passage. And Paul is talking about sexual sin, sin as a whole. And he makes the comment, or do you not know, verse 19, chapter 6, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. As temples of the Holy Spirit, this guy that's standing before you right now, in and of himself isn't anything. And it blows my mind that I and you, if you have a relationship with Christ, are a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit of the living God. The one who is with God and Christ in creation is in you. Jesus said he will be with you and he will be in you. God has chosen to take up residency in this lump of clay. Wow. When the temple was built, it was made out of limestone. What was done with that limestone and what was put into that limestone was what made it glorious. And what the Lord puts into these vessels of clay, that's what makes us glorious. For he indwells you if you're a child of God. Wrap your mind around that. I can't. And I look at that truth and I go, if you live in me, I think this temple should look much different. And I feel like God says, yes, we're working on it. And I say, yes, Lord, I know you are. What's the blueprint? Go over to Romans. Okay. Romans chapter 8, verse 26. Again, familiar passage. If I can find Romans chapter 8, verse 26. It's in the Bible somewhere. There we go. Okay. 
Now look. We're going to take a chunk here. Likewise. Now he's talking about living in the spirit, not living in the flesh. That's what chapter eight's about. Living in the spirit. Likewise, the spirit helps in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I used to always think that was just, I'm weak in my prayer life. I don't know what to pray. The Holy Spirit will help me. That's true, but it's bigger than that. When we look at the whole context, the Holy Spirit, he is what in the Greek is called the paraclete, okay? Not parakeet, not a bird, okay? Paraclete, one who comes alongside to aid and help. He is our helper. He is our counselor. He is our teacher. He is the dunamis, the dynamo, the power of God in our lives. Okay, he helps us do this. And as I was reading this, it's just like, it made me think, you know, lately I've been praying for more help. It's like, God, I can't do it on my own. I can't be the man that I want to be and you want me to be in my own strength. I can't be a temple that brings you glory and honor the way I want to in my own strength. I can't be the husband or dad or anything that you want me to be on my own strength. I need your help and I need it really bad. We were never intended to walk this life alone. We were never intended to live the life of Christ alone. That's why he's put the Holy Spirit within us so that we can live and bear fruit from out, inside out as he conforms us into the image of Christ. And that's me getting ahead of myself. But look at this, verse 27. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Thank God the Holy Spirit is praying for you and me and interceding on our behalf. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined, he also called and those whom he called, he also justified and those whom he justified, he also glorified. I want to be clear. This is not talking about being predestined to salvation. Okay. And people get hung up on that. Okay. This is what is God's end game for our lives. It is to that end game, that predestination the goal is for us to be like Jesus. It says that when we see him, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. That's the blueprint. It's Jesus. Okay. Jesus is the blueprint. And it's the Holy Spirit who enables us. What then shall we say? 
to these things. If God is for us, who can be against us? Again, I, I, you know, you compartmentalize them. It's like, well, you know, if people are against me and everything like that because of the Lord or whatnot, the Lord's for me. The Lord's for you and me and being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter who's against us. This is what the Lord has for us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for, all, for us all, how now will he not also with him graciously give us all things. He is the one who provides for this temple. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us? Jesus is the right hand of the Father interceding for us. The Holy Spirit's interceding for us. We can't lose. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any else, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus is the blueprint. The Holy Spirit is the empower. God the Father has provided everything that we need. Jesus, if you go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, is the foundation. Or chapter 2, my apologies. No, 3. Okay. Chapter 3, verse 11. And we know this is when people in Corinth were squabbling over who they followed. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Paul. I'm of Peter. I'm of Jesus. You know, and all this division. And Paul brings it all down to this. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. To have a relationship with God, to have eternal life, to be filled with the Spirit, to be a child of God, you cannot build upon anything else but Jesus. Going to church will not get you saved. Believing in God will not get you saved. Believing in Jesus that he is a real person and all will not get you saved. The demons believe, James tells us, and they're frightened. Being a good person doesn't cut it. One foundation. The foundation is the blueprint. Jesus Christ alone. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that, has, that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, through, though him himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple? and that God's spirit dwells in you. 
There it is again. What do we build into these temples? What lasts? What we need to do is just obey the Lord. Walk in his ways, empowered by his spirit, yielding to him. And that is how we're built. As we yield to the Holy Spirit and he draws up the junk in our lives to show it and calls us to repentance, we're building eternal things. It's not just serving the Lord in like the church, teaching Sunday school or helping pass out bulletins or worship team or ushering or prayer ministry or anything like that. That's all a part of it. But it's actually just in its most basic, simple way, is just living for Jesus. Just living for him. Jesus said, let your light so shine before all men that they may see your good works and bring glory to your Father in heaven. Just obey. Just seek. That's what David told Solomon. Search his commandments, keep his commandments, and God will take care of the rest. And that's what David did. He learned the hard way, just like me. You screw up, but God is faithful. And I praise God for that. And even things that people don't see are part of building the kingdom. I think of Susanna Wesley. Methodists call her the mother of Methodism. Okay? The reason being is she was a mother of 19 children. Can you imagine that? Okay, now if you think that's impressive, you need to have more respect for her mama who had 25, okay? She was one of 25. Wow. Susanna Wesley, with all of the work that she did, pouring into her children, she was on her face before the Lord every single day. Every day, each hour of the day, daytime, one of the children was assigned a slot where they had uninterrupted time with Susanna as she poured into them and poured into the things of God into their lives. John's was on Thursdays at three o'clock in the afternoon. Because of the ministry and heart and the life that Susanna Wesley lived for the Lord, John Wesley, Charles Wesley grew up in the things of God, the whole family did, and they went on to lead some of the greatest revivals in history. The work of a mama pouring into her children, living a life for Christ, she was a primer used to launch revival years down the road. Her fruit was lasting. It looked small, but it had huge repercussions for the glory of God and for the good of the people who heard the gospel. We tend to think we have to do these big things by our own estimations, simply living the life of Christ by the help of the Holy Spirit has a huge impact. 
praying with our children, pouring the word of God into them and living it out before them has a huge impact. But it's not just our personal temples, there's another temple involved. And we find that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. And there's a problem in Ephesus where the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers are at odds with each other. And Paul is addressing this issue. And he says in verse 19, of all of them, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ, the gospel. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The church, not just this church, but the church universal throughout this world, our brothers and sisters in Christ in Sudan, Iraq, Russia, Cambodia, Mexico, Peru, Canada, every place across the face of this planet, our brothers and sisters, we are the church. And the Lord, by the Spirit, is building us up into a house for him. Jesus is the cornerstone. The cornerstone had to be perfect. It had to be square. It had to be plumb. Because every other stone will be joined to that one. And if the cornerstone is off, then the whole building starts going crazy. The further out you get from the cornerstone, the walls start getting really weird. The higher up you go, the wall starts going one way or the other. Jesus is the cornerstone and the Holy Spirit is fashioning us individually into stones that will fit well right up against Jesus so that we can be plumb and in line with him so the house will be built well. And this carries over into first Peter and we're going to finish up here. Okay. Actually we won't, we're going to finish up with Solomon, but I'll be quick with this. First Peter chapter two, talking about how we're supposed to conduct ourselves as Christians. Let's start in verse one. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good as you come to him a living stone. Okay, he's that cornerstone and he's not dead religion. He is alive and well. Rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, not like literally, living stones, okay, we are living building blocks of the temple 
of God, the church, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, if you go over to verse or chapter four, how do we build? How do we fulfill our place there? Chapter four, verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of the varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. There it is again. God is enabling us. We need to just yield. In order that everything in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What gift do I have? Yours might be the gift of faith. Might be the gift of encouragement. Might be the gift of healing. It might be the gift of word of knowledge, the gift of wisdom, the gift of prophecy, the gift of administrations, the gift of giving, the gift of teaching, the gift of interpretation of tongues, the gift of tongues. There are many gifts listed in the scriptures. And I think I've seen so much in the church, people wondering about what their gift is. The gift will manifest. It's natural. It's just living out what the Lord has put into you. So if an opportunity arises to do something from the Lord, pray about it. And if he says, go with it, I guarantee you there will be a gift there to help you do it whatever it may be. And the body of Christ, see, because 1 Corinthians tells us the gifts are given for the edification of the whole body of Christ, that we might be built up and be more conformed into the image of Christ. So we finish. First, first second, where are we finishing? Where am I? Second Chronicles chapter one. Let's finish here. And there's just one thing. Solomon now is king. He's at Gibeah and he's worshiping the Lord. Verse seven. In that night, God appeared to Solomon. So he starts the king. He's now king. What's he doing? He's worshiping the Lord. And God said to him, ask what, what shall I give you? And Solomon said to God, you've shown great and steadfast love to David, my father, and have made me king in his place. O Lord God, let your word to David, my father, be now fulfilled. For you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and come in before this people. For who can govern this people of yours, which is so great? God answered Solomon, because this was in your heart. And you have been asked for possessions, wealth, honor, or the life of those who hate you. And we're not even asked for long life. 
but have asked for wisdom and knowledge for yourself that you may govern my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you. And I will also give you riches, possessions, and honor, such as none of the kings had who were before you, and none after you shall have the like. There's Solomon's heart. God comes to him. What do you want me to do for you? Ask anything. I need your help. I need you to help me take care of the people you have entrusted to me. I can't do it. And God says, because you've asked this, I'm giving you everything you haven't asked for. And it makes me think of what Jesus said. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. When it's all said and done, what's left? It's not complicated. What does the Lord say? Be willing to do what he says, enabled by the Holy Spirit, and let him fashion these jars of clay, these earthly temples, into something beautiful as he pours in the things of his spirit and his kingdom into our lives, conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. He'll take care of everything else. Are we willing to seek first Jesus? Not because we want to get something from him, not because we want security, not because we want gratification, but just like a weaned child, we just love our daddy. May that be our hearts. That's why David was a man after God's own heart. Perfect, no, neither am I. Neither are you. And God loves us and has a plan for us.